The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. You know, if you ask the average Christian what Christmas was, they'd no doubt associate Christmas with the birth of Christ and in some way see it as a celebration of His birth. Is it? Is Christmas about Christ? Gary said that I was going to come up and give you the true meaning of Christmas. There is no true meaning. Okay. <laughs> there is no true meaning of Christmas. Okay, we're not here for Christmas. We're here for Sunday. All right. I'm often asked by people who are really starting to get in their Bible and they're dig, they're digging and they're seeing things, and they they ask about the holidays of Christmas and Easter and what is their biblical validity. And I often tell them the same thing: there is no biblical validity. All right. So let's. Let's talk a little bit about Christmas, all right, and see if we can discover what is going on with this. Now, the word Christmas means Mass of Christ. It was later shortened to Christ Mass, which became Christmas. It was a Roman Catholic Mass, which grew out of a specific feast day that was actually established in A.D. 1038. So that's where Christmas got its the name and the beginning It has nothing to do with Scripture. It has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. Now, some teach that the date, December 25th, came from a pagan holiday of Saturnalia. I'm sure you've heard that, because I've said it before. All right? (laughs) This was a Roman observance of the birthday of the Invincible Son on December 25th. Well, William J. Tyhe disagrees with that idea in an article he has written in Touchstones magazines called Calculating Christmas, the Story Behind December 25th. Now, in the article, Taihi says, many Christians think that Christians celebrate Christ's birth on December 25th because the church fathers appropriated the date of a pagan festival. Almost no one minds, except for a few groups on the fringes of American evangelicalism, who seem to think that this makes Christmas itself a pagan festival. I think he's talking about me there on the fringe of Christianity, all right? He says, but it is perhaps interesting to know that the choice of December 25th is a result of attempts among the earliest Christians to figure out the date of Jesus' birth based on the calendrical calculations that had nothing to do with pagan festivals. Rather, the pagan festivals of the birth of the unconquered son instituted by the Roman emperor Aurelian on 25 December 274 was almost certainly an attempt to create a pagan alternative to a date that was already of some significance to Roman Christians. Thus, the pagan origins of Christmas is a myth without historical substance. So he's saying basically that in his research, and he gives a lengthy argument in this article to prove the point that Christmas didn't come from a pagan celebration, 
you know, it was already a date that Christians had kind of settled upon, and then later the pagans added their festivals to that date. He concludes the article by saying, Thus December 25th, as the date of Christ's birth, appears to owe nothing whatsoever to pagan influence upon the practice of the church during or after Constantine's time. It is wholly unlikely to have been the actual date of Christ's birth, but it arose entirely from the efforts of early Latin Christians to determine the historical date of Christ's death. So, maybe the celebration of Christmas didn't come from a pagan feast. But however it came about, December 25th is not the date that Christ was born on. I think the Scriptures tell us exactly when Christ was born. For example, in Luke chapter 2, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, he says that shepherds were out in the fields. Now, the Greek word here for fields is agroleo. And it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And fields, you know, we think of fields and we think of acres and acres. Well, that's not what they're talking about. They were small plots of land. And the fields were right next to the desert. Now, in the desert, that's where the shepherds would take their sheep. They didn't want shepherds in the fields. You understand that? Shepherds come in the fields, there's going to be a fight because their flocks are eating up all your crops. The fields that they're talking about were actually about the size of this room. They were personal fields that people owned, and they had to feed their family from that, so they grew their crops on that field. Now, the moment the harvest was in, then the shepherds would move in with the sheep, and they'd turn the stubble of that field into dirt. So the shepherds were in the fields at the time of Yeshua's birth. So it had to be after the time of harvest, and before the time of planting. Harvest ends about July 1st. Spring planting begins the moment the first rains happen, about November 1st. So Yeshua's birth could not have been between November 1st and July 1st, which rules out December 25th. All right? So we know he was not born in December. But we can narrow it down a whole lot more by examining a text in Revelation. Revelation 12, 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So here, John says, is a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, it's important to recognize the relationship of all this to the astronomical symbolism in the text. The word John uses here for sign was the Greek word semion, which means a sign or distinguishing mark, whereby something is known, a sign, a token, an indication. The term was used in the ancient world to describe the constellations of the zodiac. So John's model for this vision of the church is the constellation of Virgo. And Virgo has a crown of 12 stars. 
Virgo is the second largest constellation. It's one of the earliest to be distinguished. It lies on the zodiac east of Leo. Now, all the 12 stars are visible ones. You can see all of them. They could have been seen by early observers. And it seems likely that the 12 stars also represent the 12 signs of the zodiac. From ancient times regarded as symbols of the 12 tribes of Israel. We picked that up very early in uh, Genesis, where Joseph's famous dream of his father, mother, and the 12 tribes were symbolized by the sun, moon, and the 12 stars of the constellations. And it's Genesis chapter 37. Now, in his book, The Birth of Christ Recalculated, Ernest Martin says, In the period of Christ's birth, the sun entered the head position of the woman about 13, August 13th, and exited from her feet about August 2nd, I mean October 2nd. But John saw the scene when the sun clothes or adorns the woman. This surely, surely indicates that the position of the sun in the vision was located somewhere mid-bodied of the woman between her neck and her knees. The only time in the year that the sun could be in position to clothe the celestial woman to be mid-bodied is when it was located about 150 and 170 degrees along the ecliptic. Now, this clothing of the woman by the sun occurs for a 20-day period each year. And this 20-degree spread could indicate the general time when Christ was born in 3 B.C. The sun would have entered the celestial region about August 27th and exited from it about September 15th. Now, if John in the book of Revelation is associating the birth of Christ with the period when the sun is mid-bodied to the woman then Christ would have had to be born within that 20-day period. From the point of view of the Magi, who were astronomers, this would have been the only logical sign under which the Jewish Messiah might be born, especially if He were to be born of a virgin. Even today, astrologers recognize that the sign of Virgo is the one which has reference to a Messianic world ruler to be born of a virgin. It says, now here we see, not only is the woman clothed with the sun, but the moon is under her feet. So the key to narrowing the date down is the moon. John said it's located under her feet, and since the feet Virgo, the virgin, represent the last seven degrees of the constellation, in the time of Christ this would have been between 180 and 187 degrees on the ecliptic, the moon has to be positioned somewhere under that seven degree arc. But the moon also has to be in the exact location when the sun is mid-bodied to Virgo. In the year 3 BC, these two factors came to precise agreement for less than two hours as observed from Palestine on September 11th. So this is the only day in the whole year that this could have taken place. Now, I'm not an astronomer, but if Martin is right, then it seems quite clear that Christ was born on September 11th in the year 3 B.C. 9-11. That should be easy for us to remember, okay? Here as Americans, 9-11, that's the date of the birth of Christ. All right? All right, now that we know the date of Christ's birth, let me say this. The apostles and the early church never celebrated Christ's birthday at any time. There is no command or instruction in the Bible to celebrate the birth of Christ. 
As a matter of fact, the celebrating of birthdays is a pagan custom. It's not a Christian custom. So let me ask you, how much of Christ, how much of Christmas has to do with Christ? How much of Christmas has to do with Christ? Listen, none of it. None of it's biblical. None of it's commanded by the Lord. None of it is apostolic. None of it was ever observed by the early church. Yet to many Christians, Christmas is a religious holiday. And they work very hard to keep Christ in Christmas. How many times have you heard that? Oh, well, let's make sure we keep Christ in Christmas. I always say, why? He doesn't belong there. Why would you put Him somewhere He doesn't belong? It has nothing to do with Him. Well, you heard, well, He's the reason for the season. He's the purpose of it all. Really? The purpose for what all? Ask somebody that when they tell you. He's the reason for the season. What's He the reason for? The gifts? We give gifts to each other. That's, that's, that's for Christ's sake, right? That we do that? Maybe it's the lights, all the lights all over. That's how it's associated with Christ. Is it the trees? Is it Santa? Is it cookies, parties, materialism at its finest? Is that about Christ? What does any of that have to do with Christ? None. It, there's nothing. There's nothing associated. They're not associated at all. I mean, if it, we're doing this on, I mean, December 25th. This is not his birthday. But even if it was his birthday, and the things we do, what does that have to do with him? See, the way I normally see it work is when someone, it's somebody's birthday, you give them presents. Try that in your house. It's one of your kids' birthday. Give everybody else a present but them. See how that goes over. Start a new custom. <clears throat> now listen. And this is really important. You've got to catch this. I'm not saying it's wrong for Christians to celebrate Christmas. And, then, you know, people struggle over this. Can we do this? Is it wrong to have a tree? I don't think it's wrong as long as you're not bowing down and worshiping it. You know? It's a tree. All right? I enjoy Christmas. I enjoy the holiday and some things that go along with it. But let's just enjoy it for what it is. It's a holiday with no biblical significance like the 4th of July or Valentine's Day or whatever else. It's just a holiday. But see, I think it's wrong when you try to stick Christ into that holiday and make it somehow religious. Because there's no biblical justification for that. I don't know if it makes us feel better or somehow we, you know, because... Just examine the practices of the day and see how Christ fits into any of it. We can't, people, we cannot keep Christ in Christmas because He doesn't belong there. He has nothing to do with Christmas. Nothing. Now having said all that, (laughs) let me say that biblically, there is something special about December 25th. All right? Ernest Martin, in his book, The Birth of Christ Recalculated, says this, Jupiter, recognized by Jews and Gentiles alike as the planet of the Messiah, was located in Virgo's womb and standing still directly over Bethlehem on December 25th, 2 B.C., 
when the child was a little over a year old. December 25th. There you go. Now, let's go into this a little further. In his book, The Star of Bethlehem, Frederick Larson states this, With software which incorporates Kepler's equations, we can create a computer model of the universe. In minutes, we can produce thousands of sky maps, which was great labor before computers. We can animate the universe in real time in any speed we choose, make months pass in moments, or wind back the clock. We can view the sky precisely as it moved over Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. So he's saying, we can map this out, we can see. Well, here's what Matthew tells us in Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Now, after Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, commenting on this verse, Larson says, It can be proven from the text, or it can't be proven from the text, but quite possibly that some of the Magi were, Jew, were of Jewish descent. And I think that, that just makes sense. He says, perhaps a Jewish remnant from Daniel's day. Remember, Daniel and the children of Israel, they'd spent years there, and you think they didn't have an, a huge effect on the people there? There were other Jews brought into that region. All right? He said, this would, would help explain why a Jewish philosopher, Philo, would admire them, and why they are watching the sky for things Jewish. Why would they be doing that if they weren't Jewish? why they wanted to worship a Jewish king, and why they were taken so seriously by Herod and the Jewish chief priests. You know, if they weren't Jewish, that wouldn't make any sense. They said, we saw his star. If they were not Jews, they must have been the most impressive magi, as indeed, because Jews at that time were deeply disdainful of pagans and their beliefs. Larson says, the star that they saw was the planet Jupiter. In ancient times, planets like Jupiter were considered wandering stars. Larson says, A magi watching Jupiter that September saw two objects moving so close that they appeared to touch. This close approach of celestial bodies is sometimes called a conjunction. Our Middle Eastern viewer saw Jupiter coming into a close conjunction with the star Regulus. Now, Matthew 2.9 says this, After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them, and it came and stood over the place where the child was. So, notice that the star went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. This is the star that they're following. It stops over Bethlehem. Now, this account is not of the birth of Yeshua. This is over a year after His birth. All right? He's born on September 11th. This is December 25th, the following year. Larson says, An astronomer tracking the movement of planets through the star field watches not so much on a scale of minutes, but on the longer scale of days, weeks, and months. On this scale, the time of Jupiter did stop. On December 25th, 2 BC, as it entered retrograde, Jupiter reached full stop. In its travel through the fixed stars, Magi viewing from Jerusalem would have seen it stopped in the sky above the little town of Bethlehem. So according to Larson, the astrological charts 
show that this was December 25th when Jupiter stopped in the sky and when the wise men presented Yeshua with their gifts. He also made the comment, nobody believes that Jesus was born on December 25th. Now, I'm not sure what he means by nobody. Is he saying no scientist, no scholar? Because uh, he certainly can't mean nobody, because almost everybody believes that. Okay? So I, I think he's using nobody here in a limited sense. I, you know, most people, most people in churchianity, okay, believe that he was born on December 25th. All right? Well, I'm not an astronomer and I don't even play one on TV. But if what Mar- Ernest Martin and Frederick Larson are saying is true, this is kind of cool, I think. You know, it gives a little bit of meaning to December 25th. You know, these wise men showed up to worship the king. That's what happened, though. Now, notice uh, Matthew 2, 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these magi show up and they fall down before the king to worship him. Remember Herod ordered the slaughter of infants from two years old and under, according to the time that we, which he ascertained from the Magi, indicating the child wasn't a newborn anymore. So when the Magi showed up to worship Yeshua, it's December 25th, 2 BC, and notice that the Magi are there to worship Yeshua and give Him gifts. They didn't give gifts to each other. They weren't celebrating His birth. They're giving gifts to the King and they're celebrating His kingship. December 25th is not the birth of Christ, but it is the day that the wise men worship Yeshua as the sovereign King of the world. Alright, here's my problem with Christmas and its association with Christ, with the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ was a miraculous event of great significance to mankind. But I'm afraid that associating it with Christmas and with myths like Santa Claus and with the gross materialism associated with Christmas, it makes the birth of Christ seem insignificant. And I think the birth of Yeshua is way too important to confuse it with Christmas. Let's look at the biblical account of Christ's birth and see its magnificence this morning. Because the birth of Christ is something very special. But I just think we greatly damage it when we associate it with all this stuff that has nothing to do with it. And somehow we say, yep, it's His birth. And we're doing all this stuff in honor of Him. Putting up a tree putting lights on it, putting presents under it, making cookies. All this is just for Him, right? No, none of it is. It's just a celebration. Look at Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Yeshua the Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, here we see that Mary's betrothed. This is a, a solemn promise in marriage Betrothal among Jews is not like our present day engagement. People get engaged, they get unengaged, you know, they can do that, you know, there's nothing legal about it. 
You know, but in a betrothal, the bridegroom and the bride pledge their troth, meaning their faithfulness or their loyalty to each other in the presence of witnesses. Now, according to Old Covenant regulations, unfaithfulness in a betrothed woman was punishable by death. We see this in Deuteronomy. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. And notice this betrothed woman is called his wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now let me ask you something. What happened if it didn't happen in the city? What happened if this happened in the country? Do what? Right, right. You didn't kill the woman then. You killed the man. Why? Because she could have cried out and no one's here. No one's going to hear. But if it's in the city and she didn't cry, someone would have heard her. So it's very specific regulations there. Alright? So a betrothed couple was considered legally married, even though they'd never lived together, they never had any physical relationships. And this period normally lasted for 12 months, and it served as a period of protection to establish each partner's fidelity. Now our text says, before they came together. In other words, during the betrothal period, before they began living together, before there was any sexual relations, that... uh, Mary discovered the pregnancy. She's found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. While she's a virgin. They hadn't married in the full sense of the term. Now Mary understands what's going on because the angel Gabriel told her that this was going to happen. In Luke 1, 28-35, it says, And he came to her and he said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now you can imagine just having this Angel, come and talk to you. That's going to blow you away in the first place, all right? I mean, it's not, this is not an everyday occurrence, all right? This is an angel shows up and he's talking to Mary. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. You know, yeah, this, who is this? And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. That's a good thing to say when an angel shows up. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bear a son. And you shall call his name Yeshua. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called the Son of God. Now, think about this, ladies. Girls. You're engaged. And in this time period, in this culture, this engagement, she was probably 13. Alright? Girls got married a lot earlier over there. She's 13. You've never had sexual relations with a man and you find out you're pregnant by God's Son. Alright? You're carrying the Son of God. How do you respond to that, ladies? It would have been difficult for Mary to protect her reputation. Okay? I mean, what's she going to tell people? What does she tell her dad? Uh, Dad, I'm pregnant. 
God's gonna, I'm going to have God's baby. <laughs> How does a father respond to that kind of thing? I mean, I just, you know, you think about Mary and what, what had to happen in her life, what went on, and how people responded. People are judgmental, okay? And you can imagine, here's this 13-year-old. Jeff, if Cassidy came to you and said, Dad, guess what? I'm having a baby. That'd be kind of hard to process, Okay? It'd be hard to get your head wrapped around. Well, you say, well, they had the promise of Isaiah. That, you know, a virgin was going to... Ha- yeah, they did, but did Mary think she was going to fulfill the prophecy? I doubt it. I mean, you'd have to kind of think highly of yourself to think, I might be the one. You know? Mary's just this humble lady, all right? I mean, what did she tell people? Listen, I want you to know I've never been a faithful... Uh, the child that I'm carrying is God's. Okay, sure, we believe that. How many people do you think would believe that one? Would you believe that? I mean, you wouldn't believe it today. Well, why would they believe it then? I mean, this is not a natural pregnancy. It's a miraculous, it's divinely conceived birth of God in human flesh. And I think we just need to give Mary a lot of credit. I mean, this is a special lady that God chose. Now, let me say here that I think non-Catholics find it very difficult to form an unbiased opinion of Mary, okay? Because we're so put off by the way the Catholics worship Mary, and because we're repulsed at the dogmas that they proclaim that are wrong, I mean, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, the dogma of the perpetual virginity of Mary, because these are not taught in Scripture and they're wrong. And we see Catholics, especially if you go up north, they worship Mary. And so we're inclined to go the other direction, right? Mary's just an ordinary person. But the doctrinal errors of the Roman Catholic Church shouldn't be a reason for us failing to see the type of person that, this, that Mary was. I mean, God chose her for a reason. He felt she can handle this. We should realize she was a, a special lady. I mean, the angel had come to Daniel and said, Oh, Daniel, greatly beloved. But he said something more significant than that to Mary. He says, Greeting, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She's like, Favored? What? What's going on? You know. And it seems like from the scriptures that Mary is a person whose heart and mind was, was filled with the scripture. I mean, later in this chapter, Mary breaks out into the magnificent. When she gets in the presence of Elizabeth. And as you read the Magnificent, you can see that she's taken phrases from the Tanakh and put them together in this tribute to praise to God. And so it's obvious that Mary was a student of Scripture. She knew the Scripture. She accepted what the angel had to say. Now, okay, you think it was hard for a father, and I'm sure it was. I'm a father. I know it was hard, okay? But how about Joseph? We're betrothed. We're going to get married. Joseph, i got to tell you. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? You know, the virgin birth was prophesied in the Old Covenant. God had told His people what He was going to do. It was going to be a supernatural act. Something that had never happened before. It would never happen again. 
And several passages in the Tanakh speak of this virgin birth. For example, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between the woman, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So you see the virgin birth there? <laughs> well, the word offspring here is Zerah. And Zerah means seed. The only time in the history of the world that a woman had a seed was Mary. It's normally ascribed to the man. All right? Jeremiah 31, 22, How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For Yahweh has created a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles a man. In other words, a woman on her own shall develop a man. And then the famous one in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now the truth of the virgin birth, people, is very important. For Yeshua to be God, He had to be born of God. Joseph, a man, and Mary, a woman, can't produce God. God cannot be born into the world by natural human processes. There's no way He could be God apart from being conceived by God. Matthew put it this way, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, this has to be, when you really think about it, which we probably don't do too often, but it has to be the greatest miracle, the most fantastic truth ever recorded in the pages of Scripture. God became a man. The Almighty, the Creator of the universe, appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Now, I know the hymn says, no crying he makes. No, he was a baby, he cried. It's not a sin to cry, and I'm sure he cried, okay? But he was a baby. He was unable to do more at birth than lie there, stare, and wiggle, and make noises. He needed to be fed. He needed to be changed. He needed to be taught like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. God became a man. But as he considered these things, this is Joseph. Because, you know, he's having a hard time dealing with this, all right? And you can understand. Your, not, your betrothed comes to you and says, Honey, guess what? An angel came and I'm pregnant and I'm having God's baby. <laughs> He'd be like, Yeah, right. Okay? As he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And I think the angel had to show up to Joseph. I mean, how else is he going to buy this story? You know? I mean, he must have been so hurt, so upset when she tells him this, because he just figures, Mary's been unfaithful to me. So now what do I do? How do I deal with this? He needed to do something. But he just didn't, wasn't sure how he was going to handle it. And while he's mulling these things over, the angel appears to him and gives him the information he needs to know that, yeah, Mary's telling you the truth. And Joseph had to be relieved by that dream, but a little troubled still. Mary had not been unfaithful. That would be comforting. 
the faith of them both would have to be very strong though, to believe this incredible message of the virgin birth of God's Son. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child that will be born to you shall be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the Greek words that are translated here, come upon and overshadow, are words that are used in the Greek translation of the Tanakh in contexts that suggest the coming of a whirlwind. And overshadowing suggests the hovering of the Shekinah glory of God over the tabernacle. So these are strong terms. This pregnancy of Mary was a miraculous work of God. Well, eventually Joseph became aware of Mary's condition, and his reaction is described in verse 19. He says that her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And of course, this is before the angel comes to him. He's trying to figure these things out on his own. He says, I'll just, I'll just put her away. I'll just you know, do this quietly because obviously she's, she's an adulterer. She's a cheater. Because he's a righteous man, he decides he couldn't marry her. I mean, he thought she was unfaithful. And if he married her, that'd be an admission of his own guilt. And he's unwilling to expose her to the disgrace of public divorce, so he's choosing a quieter way. I'm just going to put her away. You know, I'm just going to make this as easy as possible. And, and so really, you know, even before the angel shows up, he's working these things out in his mind, and, and he, he's showing that he's a kind man. He doesn't want to hurt. You know, he's got to be really hurt at this time. He feels violated. This woman has cheated on me. And yet he's not trying to attack her. I'm going to put her away quietly. I'm going to do just you know, do what I have to do to break this betrothal off. And then the angel comes and they're all relieved. <laughs> Matthew one twenty one says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Alright. Let me say here that Mary never called her son the Greek name Jesus, and she certainly never called her son Jesus. Our Savior's name when He walked this earth was Yeshua. Matthew 1, 1-16 makes it clear that He came from Hebrew descent through the tribe of Judah. In other words, He was Jewish. He was born to and raised by Jewish parents who raised him under Jewish culture. He spoke Hebrew. The name Yeshua is literally a transliteration of the Messiah's name. Transliteration is a conversion from one text to another text of script. When one says Yeshua, he is literally speaking Hebrew. That's his name. This is the name that all the apostles would have known him by. This is what his mother would have called him. Here's what most Christians don't know. This is, this is I think, now has moved into number one place on YouTube. Uh, a message entitled, why, I, why Use Yeshua Instead of Jesus. Number one place on YouTube now with, you know, 90,000 some hits. You know, because it's such a big deal. And the argument we get from it, well, my Bible, it says Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, I know, you're reading English, okay? And that's what the English Bible says. And we say, you know, we have put some sacred significance on the name Jesus. And here's what most Christians don't understand. 
Prior to the Hebrew name Yeshua being transliterated into the Greek, Jesus, this word did not exist in Greek. Okay? So prior to this time, no one heard this Jesus name. But in the 17th century, the J replaced the I. Prior to the 17th century, there was no letter J. Okay? Just a little fact that people like to ignore. But in the 17th century, the J replaced the I to make the name we're familiar with, Jesus. So prior to the 17th century, no one ever heard the name Jesus. Nobody. So our Savior has only been called Jesus for the past 400 years at the most. If you could go back in time to the 16th century, meet with a group of Christians, and say, I love Jesus, they'd say, who? We never heard that name. Who is that? They have no clue. And here's why this is important, to me anyway. The name Yeshua literally means Yahweh's salvation or salvation from Yahweh. See, Hebrew names had meaning. They had significance. To us, a name is a name. Bob, Mike, what, it just, that's that person, you know. It, Mike doesn't mean anything special. Bob, you know, so, but Yeshua meant something. Yahweh's salvation. Mary was to call her son salvation from Yahweh because that's what he was. The angel's word make it plain that this son was to be God's promised Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises to David centuries before. Every time Mary spoke Yeshua's name, she would be reminded, salvation from Yahweh. And when she opened the back door of her house and yelled out, Hey, Yeshua, come home for supper! Everybody was hearing salvation from Yahweh. It's time for you to eat. Salvation from Yahweh. That's what He is. He was called Yeshua because He will save His people from their sins. That's why He has that name. He is salvation from Yahweh. He's going to deliver His people he was born, now listen people, again, we're, we're, we're taking a major significant event in Scripture, the birth, the incarnation of God, and we're laying it on this holiday that has nothing to do with it, and it just gets trivialized. And it's a big deal. Yeshua was born so that He could die for His elect. The Bible says that Yeshua came into the world to save us from sin. That's the reason for the birth. And that's way too important of a message to allow get lost in the celebration of Christmas and the way we celebrate it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great English preacher, used to say this. I loved it. Ever since I saw it, I said, man, I could agree with that. He says, look, Christmas is here. We might as well learn to live with it. And take the opportunity to exalt Christ. In other words, we're not getting away with, you know, there's nothing we can do. Listen, there's nothing we can do about the tradition of Christmas. No matter what you teach, I don't care how much truth you bring out, people are going to keep doing what they're doing, okay, for the most part. So I think Spurgeon has some good advice here. We're not going to change the tradition. But we could use the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. You know, people say, he's the reason for the season. Say, what do you mean by that? What is the meaning of Christmas? 
Ask people that. To which they no doubt will respond, well, it's a celebration of the birth of Christ. Right? That's what they're going to tell you. And then you can respond, why was He born? And as soon as you begin to explain that He was born to die, now we're sharing the Gospel. And I think that's what Spurgeon says. We might as well learn to live with it and take the opportunities to exalt Christ. So, my view of Christmas is it's a holiday. I kind of like it. You know, because family gets together, people are happy, you know, things are pretty, it's nice driving down the streets and see these lights, and, you know, there's a lot about it that are nice. I don't have to Christianize it. I have a car that I drive almost every day. I don't try to make it Christian. I don't find some Bible verse to justify the fact that I drive a car. Now, there is, there is justification. I could justify it if I had to. Because in Acts, it says that all the apostles were in one accord. So they did understand something about cars. <laughs> My point is, there's, a, there's things that we do that we don't have to try to justify and say, well, the Scripture says this. It's just a holiday. Fourth of July is not in the Bible. Valentine's Day is not in the Bible. So you can enjoy the holiday without trying to Christianize it. But I think when you say he's the reason for the season, then you got to scratch your head and say, he's the reason for this? This materialism, this gross materialism? You know how much Americans spend on wrapping paper alone? Millions and millions of dollars just for paper to wrap stuff up so kids can tear it off. All right, I'm done. I'm not going to beat up the holiday, okay? Listen, enjoy your Christmas, all right? Have fun with family, have friends with relatives. You don't have to justify. You don't have to Christianize it. Christ was born, but it was September 11th. Yes, December 25th was a day he was worshipped. So if you want to do something biblical tomorrow, just worship Christ. Give him the gifts. You say, well, I can't really give him the gifts. Yes, you can, because he says, when you've done it to least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. But maybe we should give them to someone who actually needs them. All right, I'm going to stop. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, I thank you for your, your love for us, Lord. I thank you that you were born into this world because you loved us. You left heaven, became a man, and came to die for us. Father, that's an incredible truth. Help us not to trivialize it by connecting it with this pagan celebration. Father, I thank you for your love for us. I pray that we would just realize that Christmas is a holiday. We can celebrate it. We can enjoy what's there. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Give us wisdom, Lord, in our Christian lives. Let us realize that some things that we believe and hold to, we don't have to push on everybody else. Thank you, Father, for the freedom we have in Christ. Amen.